Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to one of Scotland's top novelists about truth and control, spoke to a self-described nerd about race and racism in the tech world, and got a sports update straight out of Mesoamerica. All this plus the Trump diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for May 26, 2017. In a Lumpen Radio crossover show, I-94 and Radio Free Bridgeport both spoke with Scottish novelist Jenny Fagan. Fagan, considered one of Britain's best young writers, discussed her novel The Panopticon, spoke on the care of orphaned and abused children, and discussed structures that governments may use to control the citizenry. Radio Free with John Daly, Ed Marzuski, and Jamie Trecker airs every Tuesday at 4 p.m. I-94, Lumpen's books and literature show with Jeremy Kitchen and Michael Sack, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. You're listening to Radio Free Bridgeport. We are joined now by author Jenny Fagan of the Panopticon. We're very happy to have you here. And and why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, kind of starting at the beginning, what what kind of informed and and uh, and uh, got you to start writing? Um, I started writing when I was really young. I was about seven, um, and I think there was no reason for it. I was living in a caravan park, um, grew up in the the care system in the UK, so I wasn't surrounded by. Um, writers or or readers by any means um but i liked listening to anyone who could tell a story so even if it was you know my neighbor or some old lady on the bus and i started reading books really young and um, was able to escape my life by reading and that was vital really uh in a way for for surviving and also being able to imagine other worlds you know it was a huge thing and i had a massive imagination and i think the first time I started putting words down. I wrote poems, like really bad seven-year-old poems. Uh, um, and somebody said to me later on, they said, oh, were they really urban and gritty? And I was like, no, I was seven. It was like about <laughs> sheep and fields and stuff. Do you know what I mean? And bees. And of course it wasn't urban and gritty. But um, I think when I saw words on a page, it was really, really powerful because I, when I was a kid, I, I went through stages where I found it hard to even speak or... Um, you know, I, I moved all the time and I was always the new person in the neighborhood. So to be able to see my words on a page, there was something concrete about that. There was something that I could go back to it and I could look at it again. And so I, I literally never stopped. I wrote um, poems and journals when I was a kid. And I think if if you're if you're essentially voiceless and if you grow up in the care system, you, you really are voiceless as a kid. Um, finding a place to have a voice is so important. So, so words and music were the two things that you know all the time I was drawn to. And I, uh, I met a friend's dad recently who I knew when I lived in the caravan park, and he said, "Oh, we never knew that you 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 were writing the whole time, and it wasn't something you would have told anyone. You know, you didn't go out in a lot of the kind of neighborhoods I grew up in and say, oh, I'm a writer or a reader, actually.'" Um, but it was it was my little closet secret. It's interesting that you say words uh, or music, or that you interpret it that way. We were very fortunate to have uh, Don join us, and and uh, with Irving Welsh, and he was he was telling about uh, the beat that he's written some of his pieces in, and and uh, it's also been shared that he's he's someone that is a big admirer of your work. Yeah, Irvin's a gentleman. He's he's a good good guy. Uh, when I was I was just saying to I was just saying to Don earlier. I just did uh, an article on the twenty fifth anniversary of Rebel Inc. So Rebel Inc. published some extraordinary uh, literature. They were the first people to bring across people like John Fancy, and they reissued Chalky and 
got the first Bukowski in the UK, all that kind of stuff. But they also published some of the very first working class uh, voices and Irvin and uh, Laura Hurd and people like that were involved in that. And for me, I was about 16 when I, I discovered Drevel Inc. I was playing in punk bands and um, somebody passed me the information about Rebel Inc. the way you would hear about 4AD or you would hear about, you know, things like that. It felt kind of illicit. It felt cool. It felt sexy. It felt, uh, you know, what publishing should actually be and, and very often isn't. Um, so I discovered Irvin and and a few other uh, Scottish writers through Rebel Link, and it was a revelation. I was um, I was living in a little bedsit and in homeless accommodation. I had a duvet that was always covered in hot rocks. It was like a tea bag. You know, if you picked up my picked up my duvet, you could just see all the holes through it. And I would go down to the the Rebel Link offices, and they would give you books for free, Rebel Link books for free. And I would go home and read them and think, oh, well, this is interesting. I've been reading all those years and here's um here's a voice I understand you know here's my accent here's my tongue it's not just in English it's not just uh you know all the other great literature I love but wasn't working class literature you know it wasn't all that shocking I mean it, she had a lot happen mm. but you know it's funny because our society is so violent but like people freak out when there's violence happening to a child in a book but it happens all the time I think um you know, kids in care, we we were a periphery of a periphery. We're the most, we're on the periphery of the periphery. You know, when I lived in kids' units, you would move into an area and they would campaign to get you moved out straight away. Um, you know, the police, uh, the, the school, doctors, everybody had preconceived ideas about what you were. And there's a bit in the Panopticon where I say that people who are other, people who don't have somebody to vouch for them, are mistrusted by communities. And, and that's a kind of historical thing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago if you moved to another village you would take a letter from your your local priest or your local minister to say this person is okay so there's something about it that's natural in communities anyway um but obviously when you grow up as a child in an institution it has a very different impact on your brain so i work with a lot of people in prison one of my best friends was in prison for a long time he's 70 and and we um we understand the the nuances of what that can do to somebody's psychology um, and the way that America responded to the book f across, for me across the water was, you know, it was really interesting. It was uh, the, both the Panopticon and my second novel, The Sunlight Pilgrims, uh, both got the uh, front cover of the New York Times literary supplement, which uh, my publisher in New York said they'd never seen two novels straight in a row. And then quite a lot of people would interact with it as the life of a young criminal, which in a, as a criminal, you know, she's she's a criminal, but she's a child. Uh, we would say young offender. So there's a difference there. Um, and they like to keep kids in care as unseen as they possibly can, because it's something that's happening on everybody's doorstep. Um, so I understand why a lot of people don't understand that. And I would get shocked by things like somebody would say, I'm so shocked by the swearing. And I would be like, you're not shocked that 14 and 15 year old girls are going into prostitution and uh, the crime rate and the police discrimination and the fact that 70 to 80 percent of those children will not make it. And that's, you know, very representative of how it is in the real life community as well. What you're shocked by is swearing, like yeah. seriously. That's what I was. That was my uh, when I was reading the reviews, I'm like, they're like, this is, you know, disturbing and there's so much swearing and it's like. Really, that's what you're. What, you're not upset by the gang rape or the, the the couple, the young woman gets disappears, and you know it's like that's what's upsetting to you, and that's 
That's how America's weird like that because people get outraged about the strangest things when everything's happening in our backyard. And that's that's the thing that I find very interesting when it, when you go back to the idea of the the self and the other, the mainstream and the periphery, is that the mainstream is always saying of the periphery, oh well, child abuse goes on in your homes, domestic violence goes on in your homes, alcoholism, addiction, um, being a criminal, that all goes on in your homes and all we need to do is look at any government in the world and we know that the people running these countries have all of these things going on in their homes and they keep blaming it on the guys at the bottom and saying to everybody else, well, if you vote for us then we'll make it safe for all of you whilst they make it safe for nobody. You must be very interested then in Chicago, which happens to be one of the most segregated cities in the United States and has a incredible problem with violence in basically two communities that have been largely walled off, as well as a criminal penal system in Cook County that incarcerates an enormous number of people of color. Yeah. And it's built on warehousing. It's not yes. built on a it's not built on rehabilitation, it's not built on integration, it's not built on opportunity or um in particular, the the fact that the education system here is based upon tax systems is is uh, hugely shocking to me in a way. And I was in a hotel in New York a few days ago. I'm doing this tour around America, so I'm moving constantly. And I was in a hotel in New York, and I um I had a guy who was in my room, fitting a an air conditioner, and um, and I started talking to him, which freaked him out. Uh, this guy called Alfonso, lovely guy, and we ended up having this big conversation about white privilege, and he's. Um, young black guy from New York uh, and he said he admitted openly that he didn't have uh, white friends other than at work and that he really didn't expect to have a conversation in a, in a hotel room with with, um, with the Scottish person about this and, and I was saying you know I kind of understand that I grew up in a system where I didn't have privilege. You know, I grew up in, in, in the care system and you do grow up without privilege. But I was able to pass at the age of 17 or 18 or 19 or 20. You know, I could drive down the road in a fancy car tomorrow and not necessarily be worried that I would get arrested straight away. You know, I can go to my doctor for contraception or something else and not worry that he has particular ideas about me because of the colour of my skin. Um, and I think it's... It's something that we don't talk about in Britain enough. We don't talk about class. We don't talk about race. We don't talk about these things publicly. And again, the things that they're founded upon, they're founded upon ideology. And the point of ideology is it's based on ideas. They're not based on real things. They are based on ideas that were developed for social control. And they're still implemented now for the very same thing. And they're based on fear. And they're based on groups who have uh, the fear of losing that social control. And I really feel like across the world we're seeing the last stand of the empire. Uh, we're living in systems that are no longer sustainable. Capitalism is no longer sustainable. And the thing is, if you take everything away from communities, then they will turn around and they will bite you. If you leave people with nothing, then they have nothing left to lose. Uh, just tell us a little bit about of your experience uh, with with what you've seen, and and uh, and please tell us about you know the the trip that you're on here in the in the U.S. and um, how it's being received and, and, and actually how what your experience has been. Well, Brexit, most people um, didn't expect, most liberal people did not expect Brexit to go through, um, which I think was a foolish error. Um, and in the UK, the major newspapers are owned by five very wealthy men who went to school with other very wealthy men who run the country. So they all help each other out. And for... Uh, decades, those newspapers have essentially been using propaganda to control the opinions of people, which happens everywhere. You know, the media are, are uh, in the pockets of rich men and, and they use that medium to get the results that they want, which protect their, protect their own gain. So in the UK, basically, in the last maybe five years in particular, 
the the newspapers were covered with articles about migrants. So they were saying all these uh, poor, uh, poorer working class communities, all these areas, white communities that haven't been invested in for decades and decades and decades since the, the Conservatives first got into power. All of you people who have had no jobs, who have been generationally poor, who have been generationally ignored, who are derided, who are looked down upon, who are voiceless. We really thought you were the bad guys, but actually we got that wrong. These migrants over here, they're the bad guys that are just trying to come into the country at the moment. So if you vote for us, then we will get rid of the migrants and we will restore your communities. And they put, I think, um, 200 covers of the front covers of The Sun and the, the fear mongering and the, the, the propaganda is so obvious and it's so brutal. And um, it's actually illegal. I think it's illegal in Germany because um, obviously because of their history. So, yeah, there was a very, very, very strange atmosphere in the UK uh, the day that Brexit went through. And there's still a very strange atmosphere. And I live in Scotland, which wants to be independent from or a lot of people in Scotland want to be independent from the UK so that they can remain a part of Europe. Scotland voted to remain a part of Europe. And our vote is essentially meaningless because we're a much smaller population than the rest of the rest of Britain. And a lot of people that voted for Brexit are now saying, oh, well, we didn't think it would go through and we didn't actually know what it meant. Um, and a lot of other people are still standing by it. So that idea of the last stand of the empire, of uh, calling out to people that feel like, well, this might be the only chance you have to have a voice. This might be the only chance you have to, to impact change is very, very, very clever. And very, uh, again, very wealthy, privileged people like to present themselves as the working person and they're not the working person and they know exactly what they're doing and they're manipulating something and all of those communities will be as poor, if not poorer, than they were beforehand. And as they begin to cotton on to that, um, as you see in, in the USA at the moment, the things that are promised are not the things that are delivered. You know, it's a manipulation of the masses and, and bit by bit people get very fed up of that. So it's a strange situation. France, we were worried that Le Pen was going to get in. She's very, very far right. Um, the situation in France is very extreme. They have very big um, migrant camps there that are hugely, hugely dangerous. And it's the absolute shame of all the European community that there's uh, women and children left there constantly that can just be plucked off by any old human trafficker. And they do. Human trafficking is huge. Um, so it's but they they voted in Macron, you know, God, God, you know, bless the French. They they um, still are the voice of reason in a sea of uh, sea of fear and chaos. So there will be an election on the 8th when I get back to the UK and we will see what's happened, what happens with that. Melanie Adcock of TechScene Chicago spoke to Jeff Smith of the Chicago Nerd Social Club about race and racism in tech and parsed the differences between the words nerd, dork, and dweeb. TechScene Chicago airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Our first guest today is Jeff Smith. He is the co-founder of the Chicago Nerd Social Club, and he's here to talk with us today about the many events he's involved with and what they're all about. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How did you get your start in tech? Uh, well, it's a funny story. Uh, I had just been fired from a job as a uh, warehouse supervisor for a furniture company. Mm -hmm. So I had always been in the computers as sort of like a hobby. And I was a considerably fast typer. So I easily got a job as a data entry person. I was reading a book on TCP IP. Uh, it was like, it's like the, the daddy of all networking books. It was called mm -hmm. TCP IP Illustrated. Mm -hmm. And it was sitting on my desk. Now, unbeknownst to anyone else, it was way over my head at the moment. 
But it was sitting on my desk during lunch, and the IT operations manager for the company I worked for happened to walk by and saw it. And he was like, hmm, that's odd. This data entry tech is reading like one of the most advanced networking books out there. So he went and talked to me, and uh, you know, we developed a little bit of a relationship. And when he had a uh, second shift operator position open up, he said, hey, would you like to come work in the IT department? I said, yeah, absolutely. And that kind of you know, took everything off from there. Hmm, that is a great story, and uh, and so now you you did study in in school the computer information systems and things like that. What what do people learn, um, you know, in a major like that? I'm curious. Uh, yeah, so so it's interesting. You know, there's computer science, which is really about the the theory uh, behind computers and and the approach, and it, it's real. Um, for lack of a better term, philosophical in a way, uh, mm. in terms of computers. Computer information systems, though, specifically tries to gear the curriculum towards the applications of computers in business settings. So it's a lot of things like business programming. Uh, you you have this blend between technology and management training. Uh, so there was like a project management course. There was a networking course. Mm. There was a business computing course where as opposed to, you know, figuring out the fastest sort algorithm, you're instead, you know, building a simulated spreadsheet program for someone. Things that are more directly applicable to business and how computers are implemented in in businesses. When we think about computers, we typically think of the uh, person sitting in front of the screen coding all day long. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we don't think about, though, is eventually that code is complete and it needs to run somewhere, on a Mm -hmm. server somewhere. Uh, And that's where a systems administrator comes in. So a systems administrator is largely responsible for running the systems and services that are actually servicing the applications that you're using. Mm -hmm. So when you go to Facebook.com, there is someone there that is actually managing the systems underneath that and making sure that they're up, that they're running, that they're responsive. Um, and then there's a whole host of jobs even within that subdiscipline. So uh, systems administration is largely about you know maintaining those systems, making sure they're up and running, and making sure that we're delivering them to developers in a uh, consistent fashion for any of their pre-production type work. So let's talk about a couple of your events and who, who goes, who attends, and what they're, what they're like. Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the one of the biggest ones that I'm probably involved with is the uh, DevOps meetup, mm-hmm. and uh, DevOps is sort of a a new take on how c- computer operations work has historically been done. Uh, so it's relatively new. It's probably six, maybe seven years old now. So there's this incredible groundswell of you know community sort of springing up around that discipline. So the the DevOps meetup is essentially getting those types of uh, actors and participants together, learning about different techniques, uh, learning how to, you know, kind of instill a DevOps culture in your organization, mm. and just learning about the different tools and technologies that people are uh, empl- uh, employing in their uh, environments. Mm-hmm. So th- that's a fairly large meetup group, and we get a lot of diverse conversation, a lot of diverse viewpoints, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just generally a, a pretty good time. Well, that's great. And and so now, uh, from what I've seen, you're, with the DevOps meetup, your past meetups have covered a lot of different topics like security, compliance of the cloud, and algorithms. And, and then even your next meetup is going to focus on managing passwords and stuff. Can you tell us um, a couple interesting tidbits of what you guys have covered on some of these subjects and, and uh, topics? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of these topics can get, you know, really, really in-depth in terms mm-hmm. of how they go about uh, being tackled and approached. Um, specifically, 
one thing that we're learning is that as we start to communicate with each other, we realize a lot of us are solving the same problems over and over and over again. So uh, these meetups give us a forum to sort of figure out how people are solving these common problems and develop some sort of best case or best practice around them. So uh, the compliance meetup was particularly interesting because uh, compliance is one of those things that most companies have some form of requirement, right? Mm -hmm. But how do we go about doing that efficiently? Uh, how do we go about making sure that we're meeting these audit requirements and these compliance requirements? And how do we do it with, you know, less? Because, you know, let's be frank, when it comes down to uh, producing a product and, you know, uh, fulfilling compliance requirements, uh, usually the compliance requirements get the short end of the stick in terms of time and resources. Mm -hmm. So it was a very interesting conversation about how people are automating this process and how people are structuring it to make these audits seamless, but at the same time, um, delivering all of the value that these compliance requirements deliver. Um, managing secrets, the next meetup, is, is another great example of something that we do all the time. When we, when we talk about secrets, people typically think passwords. Mm -hmm. But it's more than just passwords because uh, you have to think about uh, a system that has or is embedded in a large organization. So you might have a password that you know, 50 people might need to know. How do you share that securely? You don't want to email it. You don't want to text it. How do you get it onto the systems? When they're on the systems, how do you protect them from prying eyes, people that shouldn't have access to those files? Uh, what do you do about things like secret keys that are used to unlock encrypted files? Mm -hmm. So it's a really complex subject, and uh, most people are pretty bad at it. So mm -hmm. there's always this sort of desire to figure out how other people are doing it and uh, what's the best way to solve it. And another meetup you're involved with is called um, uh, Blacks in Technology, and I am so very glad to see a group to support getting more blacks in technology and supporting those who are already working in the industry. Um, what were your first few meetups like for this group? So uh, we're on our third meetup now that we've scheduled. And uh, the first two meetups were really about getting an understanding of what we thought the needs for the community were out there. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really getting to know who the audience was, like what our skill sets were, and uh, getting an understanding and a vision of what we wanted this group to be. Because there's another, uh, there's a number of groups that are out there that are you know doing good work, and we wanted to make sure that we were either supplementing what they were doing or we were sort of serving as an umbrella to kind of bridge the gaps between the areas that, you know, aren't overlapping. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think we've got a pretty solid vision on what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And, uh, you know, hopefully the next meetup will sort of help chart the course for that. Mm -hmm. And then what, what does this group hope to do in, in the future? So one thing that I've always noticed is that in – in the tech scene, there are a lot of places that deal with the education piece, right? So uh, if you didn't go to college and you want to learn more about technology, there's boot camps, there's uh, you know any number of programs out there to help educate you. The problem, though, is when you're done with that, you're still – have zero experience, mm -hmm. right? You're still fairly inexperienced. And if you are black or a minority, another minority or a woman, mm -hmm. uh, there's another set of hurdles that you have to deal with to get through that. Uh -huh. So the idea with Blacks and Technology was what if we could create a group that functioned like a company to do a couple of different things, right? We could uh, form ourselves and organize ourselves like, a, like an organization, like an actual company, so that we could provide mentorship for people that are like educated, they've learned how to do things, now they just need some experience actually doing it. Well, mm -hmm. you can come to Blacks and Technology, get partnered with a mentor for whatever particular discipline that you're doing, and get some real-world experience. And we would manage it like 
it would function in a, northern, in a normal company, right? So you would be doing um, agile meetings, you know, stand-ups using agile methodologies, uh, working on sprints, having work appropriated, you know, to the different teams. And the goal is to sort of gain that experience, while at the same time, our organization would be delivering solutions for nonprofits doing good in black and underserved communities. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's kind of a twofer because, you know, not only are you out there helping the community, but you're building your own skill set, your own experience. And then for uh, for the people that are doing mentoring, you know, they have that sense of giving back to the community, not just the actual community that's out there doing things, but then working directly with individuals and helping them further their career. Because, mm-hmm. you know, m- my viewpoint when it comes to underserved people in technology is that there isn't going to be some white knight that comes down and says, don't worry, I'm going to solve all our problems and suddenly mm-hmm. we'll be you know, 40% diverse. It's not going to happen. We have to build it mm-hmm. from the ground up and we have mm-hmm. to uh, make sure that we're giving back and pulling people along with us. I want to turn to a more serious side here and 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 truly commend you for all that you do for the Chicago community and and because there are a lot of events that you're working on and and it's it's no secret that the tech industry can be exclusive and they can discriminate based on gender or race or socioeconomic status even sexual orientation. And what uh, what advice do you have for those that are in marginalized and or excluded groups who are still looking and thinking about a career in tech anyway? Man, I, I wish I had an easy answer for that. Uh, I, I think the the biggest thing that I could say is that, y- you know, you sort of have to persevere. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to run your own race uh, and you kind of have to find others in your community that may not be at your company, but uh, other people in your social circular community uh, that you can connect with and sort of like vent about some of these things or talk about some of these things. Uh, I, I think one of the hardest parts uh, being a minority is not just the act of racism or, or discrimination, it's not knowing for certain if that's actually what's happening. And that drives you crazy. Mm. So you say, did I not get that job because I'm black? Or was it because this guy's actually better than me? He's not really better than me. Is it because I'm, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that sort of like, that sort of thing sort of just drives you crazy after a while. Mm-hmm. So you, you really just have to, you know, do the best that you can. Uh, you know, know that chances are you got to be 200% better than the next guy and just put in the work. Because if you're waiting for the world to change, uh, you're going to be waiting a long time. The Trump Diaries. This week, Trump lawyers up, leaders huddle around a mysterious golden orb, students walk out on Mike Pence, and the UK is hit by terror on the eve of a consequential election. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 119, May 18th. Deputy Attorney General Ron Rosenstein told the full Senate today he knew that James Comey would be fired before he wrote the memo Trump used as a pretext to sack the FBI director. Dick Durbin said that Rosenstein told senators that he knew on Monday day before Comey was fired that Trump was going to fire the FBI director. Rosenstein also told the Senate he was not pressured into writing his memo. And Michael Flynn told the Trump transition team weeks before the inauguration that he was under federal investigation for not declaring work as a lobbyist for Turkey, according to two people familiar with that case. Despite the warning, Flynn was named national security advisor and then fired less than a month into the job. Mike Pence was the head of that transition team. 
and Flynn also stopped a military plane Turkey didn't like while being paid $500,000 as its lobbyist. That decision came 10 days before Trump was sworn in as president. Obama's national security team asked for Trump's sign-off since the plan to be executed after Trump became president, and lawmakers are questioning whether Flynn acted on behalf of a foreign nation when making a military decision. That could constitute treason. Trump called the investigation into him a witch hunt that divides the country. Trump also denied collusion with the Russians. There's no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign, but I can only speak for myself and the Russians. Zero, said Trump. Asked whether he urged Comey to ease up on the Flynn investigation, Trump said in a news conference, no, no, before ordering the media to move on to the next question. McClatchy actually reported today that there were 18 undisclosed contacts between Trump's team and Russian agents. And Comey said he was uncomfortable and dismayed by Trump's attempts to build a personal relationship with him amid the Russian investigation. A friend of Comey's told the New York Times that he saw Trump's behavior in a more menacing light and decided to speak out. Trump also notified Congress that he plans to renegotiate NAFTA, which triggers a 90-day consultation period between the administration and Congress. Negotiations with Canada and Mexico can begin as soon as August 16th. Trump has called NAFTA the worst trade deal in history. Day 120, May 19th. The investigation into possible coordination between Russia and the Trump campaign identified a current White House official as a significant person of interest, as first reported by the Washington Post. A senior White House advisor is under scrutiny by investigators, and he is someone close to the president. The revelation shows the trope is reaching into the highest levels of the Trump government. Also, the New York Times reported that Trump told Russian officials in the Oval Office this month that firing the FBI director James Comey had relieved, quote, great pressure on him. I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. I faced great pressure because of Russia, said Trump. That's been taken off. And prosecutors in Sweden have dropped a rape investigation into Julian Assange. The WikiLeaks founder has been in asylum at London's Ecuadorian embassy for the past five years. The decision does not mean that Assange is in the clear. He still faces a British warrant for failing to appear in court, and the USA may seek to extradite him as well. Trump is seeking to slash the EPA's budget by nearly 40%. Trump would also cut Superfund cleanup programs by 25%. The cuts would bring the EPA to its lowest level of funding in nearly 40 years, and those cuts appear to target directly programs that deal with climate change and global warming, which Trump has called a Chinese hoax. Mike Pence wasn't informed about Flynn's alleged wrongdoings, a source close to the administration claims. It is the second time that Pence has claimed he was kept in the dark about Flynn. The source said there is concern about a pattern of keeping the vice president distanced from information about possible wrongdoings by Flynn, calling it malpractice or intentional, and neither are acceptable. Day 121, May 20th. The Nation reports that Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice are telling lawyers to stop representing immigrants in deportation proceedings. They're accusing immigrant rights lawyers of breaking a rule that was put in place to protect people from lawyers who take their money and then drop their case. The cease and desist letter Sessions has sent could dissuade law firms from letting their lawyers volunteer for these cases, scaring them away by convincing them that immigration-related projects are too risky to take on pro bono. And White House lawyers are researching impeachment procedures in an effort to prepare for what officials believe is a distant possibility that Trump could have to fend off attempts to remove him from office. Day 122, May 21st. Trump asked leaders from around the Muslim world to battle extremism during his visit to Saudi Arabia. Trump said, quote, this is not a battle between different faiths, different sects, or different civilizations. This is a battle between barbaric criminals who seek to obliterate human life and decent people, all in the name of religion. Trump also promised not to chastise Muslim nations about human rights violations in their own countries. And during his visit to Saudi Arabia, Trump opened the Global Center for Combating Extremist Ideology. There, the leaders Trump, Egypt's Abel al-Sisi, and Saudi Arabia's Salman bin al-Saud gathered around a glowing orb in a surreal scene. 
According to the Washington Post, when the men placed their hands on the glowing ball of glass, a runway lit up, revealing men and computers in cubicles. The senator will monitor extremist activity online. And Notre Dame students walked out of their commencement to protest Vice President Mike Pence. Approximately 100 students silently filed out as Pence hailed Notre Dame for an atmosphere of civility and open debate, while condemning other campuses where there are, quote, safe zones, tone policing, administration-sanctioned political correctness, all of which amounts to nothing less than the suppression of freedom of speech. Day 123, May 22nd. Trump asked two of the top intelligence chiefs to push back against the FBI investigation into possible collusion after Comey revealed its existence. Trump asked the director of national intelligence and the director of the National Security Agency to publicly deny the existence of any evidence of collusion during the 2016 election. Both refused to comply with those requests, which they both deemed to be inappropriate. And Michael T. Flynn rejected a subpoena from senators investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election, instead invoking his Fifth Amendment rights. Flynn had been ordered by the Senate Intelligence Committee to hand over emails and any other records related to dealings with Russia. He may be held in contempt. In addition, Flynn misled Pentagon investigators about his income from companies in Russia, according to a letter released late on Monday by the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. And Trump asked a federal appeals court to delay ruling on a lawsuit that could determine whether the government would continue paying subsidies under Obamacare to health insurance companies for low-income Americans. That effectively prolongs uncertainty that is already rattling the health law and could further destabilize insurance markets just as insurers are developing rates. And the Supreme Court struck down two North Carolina congressional districts ruling that lawmakers violated the Constitution by relying too heavily on race in drawing them. The court rejected arguments from state lawmakers that their purpose in drawing the maps was not racial discrimination, but partisan advantage. And Trump claimed during his visit to Israel, quote, I never mentioned the word or the name Israel to the Russians. This was an off-script effort to push back against the damage he did to Israeli intelligence after revealing highly classified information to Russian operatives earlier this month. He also told a room of Israelis that he, quote, had just got back from the Middle East. And Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said he was pleased that there were no protesters with a bad placard during his trip to Saudi Arabia. American-style protest is illegal in Saudi Arabia and can result in a death sentence. Day 124, May 23. Trump unveiled a $4.1 trillion budget today that would increase spending on the military and the border, but would cut deeply into programs for the poor, essentially gutting the safety net to give massive tax cuts to the very wealthy. The proposal does not change Social Security or Medicare, but cuts Medicaid with cuts of more than $800 billion over 10 years. This would deny benefits to 10 million people over the next decade. The plan is based on wishful thinking. It assumes an economic growth rate of 3% when the post-recession average is just 2%. Mick Mulvaney claimed this was a taxpayer-first budget that offered compassion for the needy, but also to the people who pay taxes to fund the programs. Compassion needs to be on both sides of that equation, he said. Mulvaney's fellow Republicans, however, were unimpressed, calling the budget dead on arrival and going too far. In fact, Trump's budget would also hurt his own voters the hardest, as it reduces programs for the poor and the disabled, hurting many of the rural and low-income Americans who voted him into office in the first place. And Trump moved to block an effort by the Office of Government Ethics to identify former lobbyists granted waivers to work in the White House. A top official in the George Bush administration described the move as unprecedented. The White House has dismissed the Ethics Office inquiry as politically motivated. The Ethics Office, however, pushed back forcefully, denying the White House's request and demanding the documents. And Sheriff David Clark plagiarized portions of his master's thesis on Homeland Security. Clark may be joining the Trump administration as Assistant Secretary in the Department of Homeland Security. He denied the report, which cited 47 plagiarizations, calling the journalist who reported it a sleazebag. 
And John Brennan, the former CIA director, told Congress that American authorities realized the presidential election was under attack and feared that Trump's campaign may be aiding that fight. Brennan said he was concerned by a series of suspicious contacts between Russian government officials and Trump's associates. He added he did not know if the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. And Flynn was hit with two new subpoenas by Senate Intelligence Committee members in an effort to compel him to turn over those documents about his contacts with Russian officials. The new subpoenas are aimed at Flynn's businesses, as senators believe they cannot plead the fifth. And three men are now in custody after a man with an explosive vest detonated a bomb in a Manchester, England concert venue where the American pop star Ariana Grande was performing. ISIS has claimed responsibility for that bombing. 22 were dead and 59 injured, many of them children, in Britain's deadliest case of terrorism since 2005. All major London monuments are currently being guarded while the country is on critical alert. Trump called the bombers evil losers in a statement. Day 125, May 24th. Trump lawyered up today, retaining Mark Kaskowitz as an attorney on matters related to the Russian investigation. Kaskowitz has represented Trump in the past, as well as representing Russian interests. And the Pope met with Trump today in a meeting between two men with deeply divergent worldviews. No details have yet as merged to the content of their meeting. Trump endorsed NATO's mutual defense commitment, however, at a ceremony on Thursday as well, breaking months of silence about whether the United States would automatically come to the aid of an ally under attack. That speech came as Trump unveiled a memorial to the attacks of September 11, 2001, the only time in the military alliance's history that the defense pledge, known as Article 5, has been invoked. And Trump praised President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines in a phone call last month for doing, quote, an unbelievable job on the drug problem. Duterte has in fact killed an estimated 7,000 people in extrajudicial killings, rivals suspect the drug campaign is covered for political reprisals. Trump also boasted during that phone call that the U.S. has two nuclear submarines off the coast of North Korea, but said he does not want to use them. The comments were part of a transcript circulated by the Philippines on Tuesday under a confidential cover sheet. Duterte is close to imposing martial law in the Philippines. And the Trump administration is asking Congress for sweeping powers to track, hack, and destroy any type of drone or domestic soil under a new exception to laws governing surveillance. That request was first reported by the New York Times. The government has expressed growing concern about the proliferation of small drones and the terrorist potential for them. And Fox News has retracted a story linking the murder of a DNC staff member with the email hacks that aided President Trump's campaign, squashing a conspiracy theory that had taken hold across right-wing news media. Sean Hannity, who had unapologetically promoted the theory, remained defiant, saying, quote, all you in the liberal media, I am not Fox.com or FoxNews.com. I retracted nothing. The murder of that DNC staff member, Seth Rich, is thought to have come in a robbery. And Trump's approval rating stood at 38% per Gallup polling. Ipsos has Trump at just 35%, the lowest ever for a president. These are the Trump Diaries. Cardinal de Aztlan needs no introduction. His sports and radio show, Screams of Combat, airs every Monday at midnight.
buenas noches, aficionados y guerreros del juego de pelota del siglo XXI. Good evening, fans and warriors of the 21st century ball game. You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lompen Radio. Estás escuchando WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 F. M. Lumpen Radio. Esta es una transmisión más de Gritos de Combate con el Cardenal de Aztlaan. You're listening to Screams of Combat with El Cardenal de Aztlán. My first story. Mi primera historia. High school football prospects from Illinois. I present you three Illinois players to commit and one who already committed this spring. Number one, LeSean Stewart, wide receiver, Bolingbrook. The amazing wide receiver hasn't committed yet. The five foot 11, 165 pounds star has gotten scholarship offers from Eastern Michigan, Illinois. Iowa, Miami, Ohio, Nevada, NIU, Syracuse, Toledo, and Western Michigan. The Wisconsin Badgers won him too, but so far, Iowa has really focused on a large army of Illinois soldiers, and Stuart is one of them. Despite Stuart suffer an injury as a sophomore, his desire of becoming a warrior in college football has pushed him to work harder. He did tryouts at different college camps. He, was, he has worked out intense and gained speed and strength. El increíble receptor abierto no se ha comprometido aún con ninguna universidad. Los Badgers de Wisconsin lo quieren, pero hasta ahora Iowa se ha centrado en un gran ejército de soldados de Illinois y Stuart es uno de ellos. A pesar de que Stuart sufrió 
una lesión como jugador de segundo año, su deseo de convertirse en un guerrero en el fútbol americano colegial lo ha forzado a trabajar más duro. The amazing wide receiver hasn't committed yet. Number two, Jalen Alexander. This Hoffman State warrior is six foot two and 225 pounds. Wyoming, South Dakota, and North Dakota have intentions of bringing him to their forces surrounded by extraordinary national parks. Jalen Alexander, linebacker interior, este guerrero de Hoffman Estates, mide 6 pies 2 pulgadas, pesa 225 libras, él podría ser un leñador fuerte, el linebacker interior vigoroso, también tiene ofertas de becas de Northern Illinois, Kentucky, Illinois State, Eastern Michigan, la hermosa chica del coche europeo blanco. Jalen Alexander could be a strong lumberjack. The vigorous inside lumber linebacker has also scholarship offers from Northern Illinois, Western Kentucky, Illinois State, Eastern Michigan, Western Illinois, Central Michigan, and Bowling Green. By the way, this is a first quarter greeting to the former Bowling Green grad, the beautiful girl of the white European car. Bad at Sports spoke to Ian Walker and Naima Keith about Walker's upcoming exhibits. Walker's work, ex which ex Bad at Sports spoke to Ian Walker and Naima Keith about Walker's upcoming exhibits. Walker's work, which explores the African American experience, memory, and recall, will be shown in the Pilsen neighborhood. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And we are back. This is Bad at Sports Center on WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. Lumpen Radio. You can also find us on the Lumpen Radio app. We are about at Sports Center, uh, and uh, I want to dig into understanding Ian's work a little bit more, um, and and sort of figure out what you know, hear about your studio visit. But it's, I think it's always kind of interesting to hear about how that work comes off from somebody else's eyes. So I was actually wondering if uh, you would let us know what you saw and and uh, what the work was. <coughs> Okay, well, um, Ian is a is originally from Chicago, but now an Indiana-based artist who works in uh, print, sculpture, and painting, um, looking at the migratory patterns from um, from the South to Chicago um, and to other parts of the U.S. Um, being from Chicago, he was very interested in the history of the West Side of Chicago mm -hmm. um, and how there were huge communities of African American African Americans, um, particularly immigrant families um, in the West, the West Side of Chicago. West side. Yeah, the, the, right. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but looking at how that community no longer exists, um, and so kind of taking a historical, t kind of taking on a historical project where he has, I don't say invented, but um, has um, come up with um, this kind of Black Knight Society mm -hmm. um, that um, 
like I said, it's a fictitious group of people uh, that exists that existed uh, in the west side of Chicago. And this idea that um, there were kind of an empowered um, society, black society, that, like I said, exists in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of his work um, is invested in map making, like I said, sculpture, um, that, like I said, is both uh, you know, biographical in terms right. of looking at his own kind of family's um, you know, travels throughout the US, mm-hmm. um, but also looking at how um, communities have moved and disappeared uh, throughout Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's Did you get that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, Very good. Yes. Yes. You, a plus. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so how did that manifest manifest itself? I mean, that's a big project, you know, the, these uh, – fictitious organizations and charting all this history. How does that become art stuff? Well, so I'm from Chicago. Uh, I grew up on the far south side of southeast side, south Chicago um, of the city. And um, and so my family, my mother and her siblings were from the near west side of Chicago. uh, So that what's now uh, University Village, uh, UIC Village, um, but uh, my mom was there in the 40s and 50s, so uh, that Maxwell Street area was booming, obviously, back then. Um, it was a huge immigrant uh, community, uh, Jane Addams Hull House. Uh, there were, uh, you know, communities. There were uh, immigrants from Europe, from the South, African-American uh, um, uh, individuals who moved from the, during the Great Migration, moved from the South-North. Um, and so my mom grew up in that neighborhood. Um, and... Basically, from the 50s on, there were systematic um, sort of uh, destructions of that community. First was the um, creation of the expressway system in the 50s, mid-50s, which cut like an artery just straight through uh, the near west side, so completely severed it, literally uh, um, separated where communities were living fairly close together. Um, different populations were now separated. Uh, the, you know, the um, African American community moved further east and then south. Um, the uh, Mexican community moved further west and uh, south. So the Pilsen proper area, little village. Um, the Jewish community moved very far north. Um, so like Skokie and areas like that. Um, Greek, the Greek community, which was incredibly large is now essentially a tourist strip of about a block or so including the also the um, Italian community so these were all these communities that were sort of split up and destroyed um, so um, I moved into that area in 2000 where it was already starting to go through another change because of UIC um, buying up that property and there were discussions about keeping the facades buildings and this real kind of hokey way of kind of preserving history where you're not really preserving it, you're just preserving a facade. And so um, so I was there in 2000, and um, and I was doing a completely different kind of work at the time. Uh, I was trained as a painter and a printmaker, um, primarily a figurative artist, um, really influenced by a kind of post-war British figurative artist, so sort of an expressive kind of uh, realist uh, painting. And um, I wanted to do something different. Um, you know, it was 60 years to the day that my mom uh, lived in that, um, was born in that community, that I actually moved into um, East Pilsen. And so, uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to start doing work based on, um, you know, my family's history in this community because it's essentially lost. So I worked with my mom as a collaborator to find uh, any sort of documents or any sort of ephemeral things that would tell the history of the community. Um, 
And what she found were government-issued documents, uh, birth certificates, uh, divorce decrees, marriage certificates, things like that. Um, and I painted those. I worked with those in, in a sort of a Trump loy kind of fool or trick the eye, uh, hyper-realist style. So it was this idea of slippage. People weren't sure, number one, if it was a real document or if it was a faux document. Um, and then if it was um, a made-up document, so a made-up real document. I mean, there were these all different levels of phoness that I really liked. Um, but then also I was telling this history of my family through these government documents, which the telling it through this entity that played a role in destroying the uh, family and the, you know, the community history. Um, but I think more importantly, I started thinking about why I was interested in that sort of, like, what I was looking for. I wasn't looking for that that stuff. I was looking for, you know, old family photos and, you know, maps and things like that. Things that I thought had a weight of history that we didn't have because we didn't document our own history that way. We didn't have a Super 8 camera or anything like that. Um, we didn't take a lot of photos. Um, my, uh, you know, photos as a kid are all uh, school photos. Um, so I decided just to make up the history. So I started going more into this idea of a constructed history, a constructed memory um, of a real community. And so really I wanted people to think about why would somebody construct a history for a real community? Okay. And, and so – uh, the, how did the, the Black Knights then, if you're, you're now creating something that is faux, right. so are, are those represented through documents as well that are recreated? or Well, they are. So that was a growth that came out of that initial series of document paintings. Um, I, uh, you know, I started thinking about, you know, is there, um, you know, a, sort of a, you know, like a, a vocal pro-black uh, entity that could, again, this idea of, of telling the story that would ostensibly be in the community, uh, residents in the community, fighting for the community. So this whole like faux story playing out. Um, and so I thought, obviously I was born in 1970, so I started thinking about um, the history of, uh, you know, black nationalists and black panthers and things like that. Um, but, uh, but then there was also this kind of pull towards like the heraldic in, uh, uh, history that I was interested in map making and things like that and tapestries and painting, which was part of my training. And so I thought, well, maybe I can just kind of mesh that together. So that's where the Black Knight sort of arose out of. I feel like that Black Knight is such a kind of weirdly rich metaphor too, because it like it plays into the like uh, kind of romance of the knight and the Dungeons and Dragons, but it also plays into the kind of paranoid Knights of the Templar kind of mm-hmm. pop cultural voice. And then it also plays with that that paradigm of the Black Knight being the bad knight. Mm-hmm. And that question around uh, kind of judgment is sort of twisted upon its head to kind of say like, no, no, this is, this is a knight that's fighting for this community. Right. And this is a reclaimed history. Yes. Reclaimed. So that's interesting though. Um, so I wouldn't say that I'm reclaiming the history. That's actually kind of um, specifically not what you're doing <laughs> because you're making it up. So it's a completely faux history. The only thing that exists, uh, you know, of that actual um, like what I'm using from that community is really the community name. Um, and uh, I think when I was doing the first part of the series, I was much more interested in some of the actual information of the community, the existing information that I could research and I used uh, UIC's library and I did a lot of research um, which was interesting because UIC li- UIC's library was I guess maybe it still is it's one of the largest repositories of 
information from that lost community that they subsequently p- played a role in you know destroying that community so it was interesting um, going there and finding information um, on that lost community but uh, but I soon moved away from that um, I wanted it to be something where I had a lot more sort of artistic license to create um, and really it was much more about not sort of um, going back and reclaiming what was lost and it was much more about um, kind of a wish fulfillment I think <laughs> The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.